Before I get started with today's episode, we have a couple of announcements. Don't fast forward, though, anybody, because some of them are very important. We're going to actually keep it very brief. Yeah, so one is an update. You've been saying that we're going to have a uh, live tweet of Prisoner of Azkaban this month. We are changing that because we really are just fucking angry and don't totally want to engage with that Harry Potter thing right now. So instead, we are going to be watching and live tweeting Muppet Treasure Island. It's going to be a lot of fun. I haven't seen it since I was like seven. And I have the entire thing memorized. (laughs) It's going to be great. (laughs) It's going to be really fun. It's on Disney+. And that movie watch will be on June 26th. The time is still TBD, but it'll probably be somewhere around like five or six Eastern time. So yeah, it's going to be great. Just briefly, we recorded this episode a month ago before so many things happened, including JKR showing her entire ass. So if you want to know more about our feelings on that, you should follow us on social media where we've been... You know, we've been talking about our statements. You know, we have a guide about how to not give her any money. So just check it out there because we don't want to devote any more time to talking about it. Nope. So, and probably maybe the most important announcement in this brief intro is that this is a very heavy episode. We talk more in depth about more heavy shit than we normally do. So we have kind of an in-depth trigger warning about what's going to be happening in this episode. So everyone is aware we are going to be discussing not graphically but we will be discussing childhood sexual assault both between children and between adults and children incest child abuse including giving hard drugs to babies Uh, we'll be discussing different kinds of like childhood abuse and its effects on children and infants and toddlers we will also be discussing love potions as date rape drugs and sort of the effects of that and very brief mentions of animal abuse so if this seems like a a lot for you to handle right now check out one of our terror episodes instead yeah this is a very very heavy episode and it's also i think one of the more interesting episodes that we've ever made so if you do need to skip it right now i think put a pin in it for when you're feeling more able to engage with that kind of content and come back to it because i i think that everyone should listen to it it's super relevant to what's going on right now and i think at its heart is very much about prison abolition which is super super relevant currently so yeah i feel like i feel like it's a really important conversation i do encourage everyone to visit it when it's safe for you to do so and with that uh defund the police Gay people love puns. I'm dead. <laughs> we have to stop this podcast. Oh, this book causes Satanism. What is left for us to rant about? There is nothing straight about plum velvet. <laughs> I shouldn't have been drinking when I said that. <laughs> Monocles are impractical, but hot. I don't for a second believe that she is a straight person. I mean, I'm definitely here for bisexual Minerva McGonagall. Let's talk about Harry Potter. (laughs) Hello, and welcome to the Gaily Prophet, a podcast for two queer IRL witches talk about stuff from Harry Potter that's not chapters because it's Pride Month and we want to. (laughs) I am America's favorite Griffin Dandy, Lark Malachi Gray. And I am Griffin Dykes Chordonaire. 
Jesse Blount. And today we have a special guest. Yes. So with us in our virtual studio today is Nora Rachel. Nora Rachel is a queer and genderqueer hard femme Gryffindor Hufflepuff rising. Her full-time job is working as a real-life private investigator, which she has done for the past seven years. Nora works on a variety of types of cases, but they have extensive experience in death penalty defense working as a mitigation investigator for legal teams trying to save the lives of people either on death row already or who are being tried with the death penalty. She is also a visual artist who works with a variety of mediums and makes very queer art. Hi, Nora. Super queer. Hi! It's true, your art is so queer. I actually told people (laughs) to follow you... At the beginning of an episode recently. The reason oh, yeah. I aw, the reason I found out about y'all was literally from somebody tagging me in your make Harry Potter even gayer thing. They were like, Your art is super gay and Harry Potter. You need to listen to this. And so I am currently almost caught up. Like awesome. since that point, which was not very long ago. So I've been working <laughs> I really say, hard. That is some impressive yeah. binge listening. Oh. Thank you, Brush Children. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, so we always start by asking you a couple Harry Potter related questions. So you said you're a Gryffindor Hufflepuff rising. Do you want to tell us more about what that means yeah. to you? So I'm definitely like solid, solid hard Gryffindor, I think. Um, like social justice, I want to yell about it all the time. Like, yeah, that's my happy place. And also, I do I do think I also have the fatal flaw of Gryffindors, which is like, I, my opinions are definitely right. Yeah. Like, <laughs> this is not up for debate. Like, Donald Trump is a trash human. Like, so there's that, which is a Gryffindor trait that I definitely possess. But I also am like, I have this other part of my personality, I think, that's super fuzzy in feelings. And like, I definitely have a lot of like, I have to have a lot of emotional intelligence for my job, right? Like, my job is feelings. I also, side note, shout out to Molly Alice. Um, I'm in a, like, tiny little band, and our name is Feelings. Nice. <laughs> our band. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we make queer kids songs for my friend's queer TV show. Oh, my, oh God. my God. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll give you guys a link. It's great. Um, That'll be in the show notes, listeners. Yeah. Sweet. So, um... Yeah, so, like, there's this, like, Hufflepuffy side of me that's, like, I want to be cozy and make art. And what is that Swedish concept? Swedish concept? Hig? 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 I've never known how to pronounce that. I'm, like, what are these letters doing? (laughs) Yes, that. That's my, like, my ex used to tell me that I'm hashtag cozy at all costs. Nice. Gotta be cozy. Just gotta, no matter what we're doing. So, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So definitely Hufflepuff tendencies, but like my hard heart center is a Gryffindor for sure. I think there's something really lovely about the fact that Jesse is a Gryffindor Ravenclaw rising and I have recently accepted the fact that I am a Slytherin rising. (laughs) So we're like- We're representing- All the ways that you can be a Gryffindor. Yes. Might yeah. I say, might I posit we're Griffin diversity? Whoa! <laughs> Gay people love puns! Gay people yes. love puns! Oh my god. Yeah. Oh, that's great. <laughs> so perfect. Griffin diverse. Okay, sorry, I'll stop. <laughs> yeah, okay, so 
please tell us about your Patronus and how it intersects with your most deeply held identities. So my Patronus was actually given to me by my brother, who is no longer alive. Um, Jack, may he rest in peace and power. But my brother basically, it was not really as much connected with Patronuses, but he just decided that every member of my family was this animal. Okay. He was just like, this is you, this is you. My, he decided my dad was a silver-backed gorilla and that my mom was a sheep, both of which they were like, I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I loved the one he picked for me, which is a ocelot. So like you, Jesse, I am also a wildcat, but he specified that I am a baby ocelot. Okay. <laughs> the so, fluffiest of yes. ocelots. <laughs> so I am baby. Um, 100% I am baby. And um, I have it tattooed. Whoa. I have an ocelot tattoo. Oh, that's really beautiful. That's incredible. Yeah. Which I can give you a picture of for, you know, internet purposes. Yes, please. Um, because... Hi, listeners. You can't see my tattoo. I'm sorry. Um, but, <laughs> it is very uh, beautiful. <laughs> it's pretty. So, yeah. So when he passed away, actually, I went in and got that tattoo. That was the first thing I did after sitting Shiva. Um, so, yeah. And it just, like, his point was that, like, I'm definitely fierce. But, like, I'm not a full-grown, like, mama ocelot. Like, I'm a baby kitten ocelot. I'm a baby. <laughs> Give me soft things. So, yeah. Amazing. Okay, so now that we've been funny for six minutes, let's get into the incredibly heavy topic. Let's of this cry a lot. Interview. Uh, and just in case you skipped over our content warning, we're gonna get to some very heavy stuff. So, at your, I, I don't know what, I don't know how to follow that up. Listen at your own risk. So yeah, let's get into this. You reached out to us and asked to come talk about this and uh can you say more about like your work and what makes you excited to talk about it in the context of harry potter and whatever else feels relevant as sort of a broad overview of what we'll be talking about today sure so um i like you said so i work in death penalty defense we my firm always works in defense we don't uh, we don't work for a prosecution ever. And the best way that I describe my job is that it, my job is really storytelling, but more collecting stories. So I also tell people that I'm a tra trauma excavator, that that's my job is literally like trauma excavator is like, hey, hi, I'm Nora. Let me sit in your living room and like talk about the worst things that ever happened to you. Because my job is a mitigation investigator. So what? here's the like super quick and easy, what is mitigation? Because it's not super common that people know this term. So death penalty cases are different from regular criminal trials because it's life and death, literally, right? And the law recognizes that. And so a death penalty case is split into two parts. And it's almost like two acts of the same play. So there's the first phase, which is the guilt phase. And that's where all the stuff you sort of think about when you watch like those crime shows happens. So any kind of evidence about the actual crime the person's accused of. So like ballistics, forensics, like who was at the scene, all of that stuff is guilt phase. And often legal teams will have somebody whose job it is to investigate that, 
like there's another investigator on the team with me and he's the guilt phase investigator. Then once that's over, so then the jury sits down and decides, did he, and I'm going to use he because the vast majority of people who are charged with the death penalty are men um, or in our country currently. Um, that's kind of a default, but like, I don't want to have that mean that like everybody charged or accused of the death penalty uses he pronouns, right? Yeah. Sometimes there's women that caveat. So caveat time, uh, going back. Um, so the first part is the guilt phase and the second, and so the jury sits down and they say, okay, did this person do it? Did they do what they're accused of? Um, or maybe, and then maybe they decide they did part of it. They did these counts of kidnapping and murder, but they didn't do these other things of robbery or whatever. So then there's an entirely new trial that starts after that, which is the same jury. And that new trial is called the penalty phase. And for anybody who's in the law, I'm oversimplifying. Just give me a break. So that's the penalty <laughs> phrase phase. And the penalty phase is where it's an entire trial where the job of the jury is, is to decide whether this person deserves the death penalty. It's really unique. This is not like something that comes up in other, there's not whole trials for this in other criminal cases. Mm -hmm. And so for that, the prosecution puts forward aggravators or aggravating factors. So they try to say that my client's a monster, mm -hmm. right? Basically. And that can be anything from like the crime was particularly cruel and unusual, or there was a minor involved, or there were multiple victims. They, there's different points, different factors they put forward. And the defense team puts forward mitigation evidence or mitigating factors. So that's a hugely broad net, but the quickest way to say it is anything that could move a judge or a jury to show mercy. Mm-hmm. And so some people are like, oh, well, so then are you talking about what a good guy your client is? And I'm like, often not. That's really not where the best mitigation evidence lies because you just had a whole jury convict him of doing a real bad thing. And then to turn around and be like, but look what a good guy he is, the end. <laughs> like that doesn't come across very well. So it's my job to help the jury understand how did my client get here? How did this happen? And we go back at least three generations at a minimum of family tree history. So we map out intergenerational family trauma across all specters, spectrums, words. I feel like there's like a specter of trauma spectrum joke in there. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> I'm going to find would be all the jokes I can find. <laughs> yeah, please do because this is super dark. So yeah, no, maybe that's what a dementor is. Oh a yeah. Specter of trauma. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. So what my job is with gathering mitigation evidence is that I go out and I talk to literally everyone I can find. I talk to my client's drug dealer. I talk to all of their teachers who are still alive. Talk to their kindergarten teacher. I talk to their neighbor down the street. I talk to their sister, their cousin, their first cousin, their fourth cousin, their great grandfather whoever's around. And I work with the legal team to create an incredibly detailed social history. That's the term for it, the social history of their life. Mm -hmm. And we're not using that information to excuse what the client has now been convicted of doing, but to help people understand, to engender empathy, um, and also to show that our client's life has value. So there is some of it that's saying our client 
is important to people. You know, maybe our client has children who are on the outside. Maybe your client has pen pals that they've written to for the last 10 years, right? So we're trying to, all of that is mitigation evidence, mm -hmm. right? Anything that can move a judge or a jury to show mercy. And this, like, you may cut this out, it might be two side note, but like, one of the examples I give sometimes when I'm explaining mitigation is about smoking, right? Mm -hmm. So like, if let's say you, Jesse, maybe you're a smoker, right? And, mm -hmm. and everybody kind of knows smoking's bad for you. Like smoking's not a healthy habit, right? I am a very recently ex-smoker, so I know this. Um, so let's say you find out though that Jesse's parents smoked Jesse's whole life. Mm -hmm. And Person over here, person A might say, okay, yeah, I can totally understand why Jesse might be a smoker. When I hear that Jesse, like their parents were smoking when Jesse was in the womb, I totally get it. But person B might say, wait, hey, that doesn't connect with me at all because my parents smoked my whole life and that's precisely why I'm not a smoker because I know what it does to you. So like one piece of evidence, you never really know how it's gonna connect to someone. Um, so that's why we do, that's part of why we do such a broad, broad strokes. Mm -hmm. Um, and we're also looking for patterns in families over time. So, okay. That was all a lot of information about like, what is my actual job? And it's, my job is sitting in living rooms and knocking on doors. Mm -hmm. Like that's what my job is. And like going to courthouses and talking to Carla and convincing her to go in the back room and find the file folder that happens to have the paper that's no longer online, that's my job. So I wanted to talk about my job and, and relate it to Harry Potter because like, why can't we relate all things to Harry Potter? I mean, honestly? we can, that's why we make this podcast. Exactly, <laughs> it's just beautiful. Harry, Harry Potter can be an excellent metaphor to explore so many things. So much. So much. It brings me so much joy. This is why this is very exciting for me. I'm like, yes, let's explore this. Harry yeah. Potter, the death penalty. So um, one of the things that I find really missing from so many narratives that struggle with good and evil is that mitigation, right? It's that mm -hmm. like question of like, how did this person get that evil? Because in my experience, that kids are not born evil. It is an effect like people who do really bad things, it is an effect of a lot of things going wrong for them in a lot of ways. And with my clients, you look at their life and there almost comes a point where you're like, yep, things are not gonna get better from here. Something bad is gonna happen. And there's institutional failure, failure of caregivers, and it just surrounds them. And so when I look at like figures like Voldemort, who's like the literal worst evilest like wizard Nazi in the whole world. Mm -hmm. I'm like, where are the blank spots? What are we not seeing? And I kind of thought it would be super interesting to kind of do based on the limited information that we get, like a mitigation workup or like vague sketch out of, of what might be there for him from like the very, very limited information that we have because in real life, things are more complex, right? right? And hurt, the like number one thing in my work and in my life that I've seen over and over again, and anybody who works in social work, anybody who works in any kind of field, helping field will see this and tell you this, hurt people hurt people, mm -hmm. right? And that's what I see. And so I wanna talk about like, and I know this sounds like super, like, but like who hurt Voldemort? 
Right. I feel like we can say maybe a lot of people. Yeah. Um, I have, like, stuff to, like, I can keep talking. You can let me just keep going? Or, like, do you want to ask me more specific questions? Or Yeah. So I think there's, so there's, like, this is a common theme in fantasy, right? That we have these villains who are just we're supposed to read them as innately evil, right? Yeah. Which is very boring. Yeah. <laughs> um, we, you know, we're making a podcast about Carry On by Rainbow Rowell now. And in an episode that we recorded recently, we had, I don't know, maybe five minutes where we were just gleefully exclaiming over the fact that we have a complicated and nuanced villain yeah. in that book because it's so rare so like this is a thing that i see over and over again when you talk about like popular culture representations of crime and criminality and evilness and it's like so often on these shows it's like well he was fired so that's it the end that's why he went on a murder spree and it's like no 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 no. that's not how the real world works this is much more complicated and i promise you there is mitigation everywhere mm-hmm like it, it's there. You just have to scratch a little bit and you just, and it takes work to pull it out because we're talking about trauma, right? Trauma excavator, you know? And, and I think it does real harm when authors do not give us a more complex picture of good and evil because, so here's my point about that. And this is like the, the big main thing I wanted to talk about today, which is that I think that as a larger society, it serves us to have a narrative of people as born evil or born broken, because this actually feels like a safer view of the world, which sort of seems like counterintuitive, right? Well, if we say that there's like people running around who are born evil, how would that make me feel safer? But if some people are born evil, then we don't have to actually look very hard at the ways in which we are complicit as a society in allowing and turning away from the conditions that create what we see as evilness, i.e. children being hurt and neglected. Right. Right. Yeah. And we don't have to sit in that discomfort. And the truth of it is, is that the people who do the worst things that you can imagine have done, had the worst things done to them. Always. And I would say that unequivocally. And, you know, we see it's it's just so it's it's just so much easier to think of the world in terms like that. And like my clients get diagnosed with things like oppositional defiance disorder and antisocial personality disorder, which I would say is just utter crap. Um, because actually all of those same symptoms can be explained with a trauma informed lens. And like side note, oppositional defiance disorder is like way disproportionately diagnosed with young black boys. Oh, shocker. Shocker that. Yeah. Yeah. They're oppositionally defiant and it is a personality disorder, not like they're a little kid and they're maybe having a trauma response. Right. Yeah. And like, what does one, one is like, oh, they have a personality disorder. They're broken. They're evil. There's nothing I can do. Mm-hmm. Oh no, this is a hurt kid. We have a responsibility to intervene and do something for them. Those right. are two very different like views on how to intervene and like how institutions can help. Mm-hmm. Right. Or it's like, that's a neuroatypical kid that is, you know, acting in a certain way because of, 
sensory overwhelmingness or just mm-hmm. like an anxious depressed kid who's responding to like how shitty public schools are like it could be like right or just like even responding mm-hmm. to fucking racism like that causes mental health issues that shit is hard to deal with personally and it's like oh but it's just oppositional whatever the fuck blah blah yeah there's a personality disorder and it's like no 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 this is result of much larger issues that are systemic and are part of how our society is set up and let's be 100 percent clear like the overwhelming representation is that black men and men of color are overwhelmingly represented in the incarcerated population and in my clients. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, we could get on that. Like, no, I mean, like... I was going to, I was going to say, which I will probably say multiple times in this episode, which is part of the reason why we should abolish prisons. Yeah. Yes. Abolish the death penalty. Yes. Abolish, 100%. I mean, definitely abolish the death penalty, but like, honestly get rid of prisons and jails. Yeah. Like fuck, yep. just throw them into the ocean, not in the ocean. Cause that's, you know what I mean. Tear them yes. down. Because what would? Because they would just hurt all the fishes then. Yeah. That's why I said I'm just like, throw it in the ocean. I'm like, no, wait. Wait, but fishes. But Little baby fish. fishes. But the dolphins and the whales. <laughs> yeah. But you get where I'm going, yeah. which is that. You tear it down the and then use the, uh, you know, cement rubble to build uh, fake coral reefs for things to live or in. Or a library. Exactly. Yeah. Or like a mental health clinic. Yeah. Or a mental health clinic slash animal shelter where all of the people get animals to tend to. (laughs) You get a puppy. Okay, so like that's... So JKR kind of does a little bit of mitigation for us in the text, right? Yeah, I want to talk about that because as we all know, J.K. Rowling cannot be trusted Mm -hmm. with anything. She is terrible word and i think that a thing that happens with harry potter is that she attempts these forms of mitigation where she's like here's this person's like very brief amounts of trauma history she does it more with snape than with voldemort Mm -hmm. she does it a little bit with draco but the things that she attempts to use to be like and therefore this character you know, whatever, actually, especially with Snape, like, don't work. Like, it, 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 there isn't a, like, Snape is the bravest man Harry ever knew. He's a completely redeemable character Mm. because one time James Potter turned him upside down when he was 13. (laughs) That's, she dropped the fucking ball, right? Like, that's not, and so I feel like, I almost feel like it's worse. Her very... Mm -hmm terrible attempts to do this are almost worse than if she just had Voldemort be Sauron. Does that make sense? Yes, because there it's like she wants it both ways. Right. And what it does is it actually kind of proves up her the theory that like there is ultimate evil in the world sometimes. Exactly. You know, are like other people that we might see as more heroic, like I don't know, Dumbledore is set up as a hero even though we all know that he's yeah. trash too. Yeah. Like, but we get a whole backstory for him. Mm-hmm. We get a whole mitigation. So all of his crimes are, we actually are given empathy as readers. We're told to have empathy for Dumbledore. I think if you do a closer reading, you have some problems with him. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it kind of, it, it actually kind of reveals like how much more of a villain Dumbledore is than maybe if we hadn't got that backstory about him. I mean, I am glad it's like, Oh, yeah, you and Grindelwald were clearly boyfriends. Okay, but, like, also it's, like, Betrayal also 
baby fascists. It's like, uh... I'm thinking more about, I I feel, the ways that I feel empathy for Dumbledore are the places in when it comes to his family mm-hmm. and his family systems. And I think that Dumbledore grew up in a family where you have secrets. And actually, like, this is like a work fact, but like one of the largest like non-genetic correlations for mental health issues developing in kids is families where you cannot talk about it when things go wrong Mm. when bad things happen you can't talk about it like and we know this from like when people are unlearning and undoing trauma in things like emdr and therapy right like that has such a healing power and if you are born with this like strict, we do not talk about our shit in this family, it does so much harm. So to me, I see that playing out in how he does all of his relationships, right? That's how he rolls. That's his MO. But I also have some empathy for him because I'm like, okay, that was like how you were taught the world works. Mm-hmm. Like he's also an adult and there are children. So like he has complicity there, but like, I think when you look at Dumbledore and when you look at Voldemort, we're given so little of his story. We're just not given enough. And I think you're right, Lark, that like, I think that like, it's either you're going to have this world where there's just evil. Like, I think Aragon's another fantasy text where there's just like an evil villain who's just like objectively like Sauron. Mm -hmm. Or you give us the full amount. But when you give us this like crappy little bit, then people read it and they're like, oh, but yeah, but he was just evil. And that's just an excuse. I think that I think that what happens with Voldemort is that what she's giving us is almost like her intention is just to be like, and that's why he hates muggles and not like, and that's why he's evil, you know, or Mm -hmm. that's why he's a villain or whatever is just okay so we have a little bit of an excuse or some context about why he particularly decided that he wanted to kill muggles like here's that backstory but that it doesn't seem to have any i don't it doesn't feel like she had any intention of being like and that's why he's fucked up well and the little so one of the things that i find really fascinating is and fucked up like that jkr does is that she gives us this kind of mitigation of like the family story for him mm-hmm. where, where we're like, oh yeah, his family was fucked up. Like, and then she gives us the like mother abandoning him narrative, right? right? That fucked him up. Okay. We can all say that. But then it's like, he's in an orphanage and the way that she describes the orphanage, I'm sorry, Jesse, when we were talking before this, you mentioned that this is an orphanage in the twenties. And like, that was objectively a horror show place. Like, institutions in the 20s, like, were horror shows for children. So... And adults. And adults. Yes, absolutely. And, like, who was put into them? Like, little baby queers. Yep. You know? And people who are oppositionally defiant. Women with opinions. (laughs) Yes. 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 Oh, God. Hysteria. So much hysteria everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Uh. Thanks for giving us the vibrator hysteria. Yeah. (laughs) The one good thing to come up from all that. Yeah, right. Okay, sorry, that was a very... <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> okay, but yes, 1920s orphanages were horror shows, and all we're given is this, like, kind of kindly little old lady who, like, has a bit of sherry or whatever with Dumbledore. It's Jen. Jen. Oh, my God, look at you, Harry Potter knowledge. <laughs> <gasps> sorry. 
thank you. But yes, Jin. Like, and she's not scary. She doesn't seem like, she seems kind of nice. And then we're given what I think is honestly the thing that makes me the most angry about how we're told about Voldemort's story, which is we are then given the evil demon child. Right. Right? Which is, like, even played up even more in the movie, where he's, like, this super creepy, like, children of the corn kid with, like, black eyes and stuff. And it's just... Yeah. Yeah. In the movie, it's even, like, more so. But in the book... In the book, so, like, we see this, like, scary evil kid who's statistically hurting other children and lashing out. And, like, I guess this is kind of, like, welding into some of the, the like, extra hard stuff to talk about. But, like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I would say, so like one of the things that JKR says is that murder rips the soul in two, right? And that when, when Voldemort's making a horcrux, that in order to make a horcrux, you have to rip your soul apart. And the way that you rip your soul apart is through murder. And my point is just that I believe that like, that your soul is, can be, I, I guess in this world, I guess I would say that your soul can be ripped apart in different ways too. And that if you're getting to the point where you're killing other human beings, your soul has already been ripped apart many, multiple times over. Whether or not you actually make a horcrux, I don't know. That would be an interesting thing to think about, whether intentionally or not intentionally, right? Right. Because you can actually make a horcrux and have your soul rip apart unintentionally. That's what happens with Harry. Yeah. But only because Voldemort's soul is like so fragile at that point. But, like, maybe the souls of people who are hurt a lot are fragile real bad. Yeah, I mean, I think, I just, I guess, it feels important to me to say that I don't think that, like, everyone who does a murder has a ripped soul forever. Even, like, within the Harry Potter world. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and also, souls can be healed. Yeah. I would say. Right. So if a really atrocious act is done to you or you do to somebody else, like I think that there's always that potential um, that souls can be healed. So we're we get this like scary little kid. And like so that if Voldemort were my client, Mm -hmm. like, hi, I'm here to defend Voldemort. Um, I'm your mitigation specialist. My name's Nora. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That's how I talk to all my clients. Um, you know, I think that my first question is like, what are the stories here? Cause mm-hmm. there is a story here when you see a little kid hurting, severely hurting other little kids, what the fuck happened to that little kid? Mm-hmm. That's always my question because there's always something there. There's always an answer. Right. Um, and this is not to say that like every person who is very, very harmed by severe abuse and torture or sexual assault turns around and harms somebody else. Like that is, this is not my argument at all. But when you see people who are really, really committing what we would call atrocious acts of violence, there's, that's not something that the kid just wakes up one day, right? They're not just some demon child who's possessed. Um, and which is also like, if we think about it, that's a pretty Catholic narrative Mm -hmm. that there's just like evilness in the world and it's inherent. That's like original sin right there. Right. Which like, I reject that. I repudiate the shit out of that idea. Especially if it's like, what are other evil things? Oh, being queer. Uh, Mm. I don't know. Wearing mixed 
polyesters, like whatever the fuck else you <laughs> for the kids. <laughs> I don't know. Did they have polyester in biblical times? I mean, not polyester, mixed whatever. Whatever mixed it is. Fabrics. Yes, no, mixed no, fabrics. I'm right there with you. Yes. It's like, okay, so that also makes this just like just it's love, all <laughs> I just really love the idea of like Moses and like a polyester bathing suit. <laughs> I don't know what else would Joseph's coat of many colors have been made out right? of. Spandex. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Definitely can't make like iridescent wool. It doesn't work. No. Oh my god. Okay, thank you for that mental image. (laughs) That'll stay with me forever. Um. So yeah, original sin, ultimate evil. Ultimate kids are evil. They're just evil babies. They're just evil. They're just born that way. No. What happened to that poor kid? Mm -hmm. Something happened to that kid. And so I would propose that we read Voldemort as potentially a sex abuse survivor. Um, And one of the reasons for this is that signs of sex abuse in young children, particularly very young children, um, aren't going to manifest themselves in the same way as with adults. And one of the ways they manifest is fear and dislike of people and places. Yep. Mm -hmm. I think we see that. Um, Regressed behaviors. So things like wetting the bed when a child had already stopped that. I think that we don't really we don't have enough information on that front because um, we don't have enough information about him. Period. Right. Yeah. But um, withdrawal into the self, right? So disassociating, um, hyper vigilance. I think we do see that with him in that scene, right? Like he is all over Dumbledore, mm-hmm. like and checking the door, watching everything, and then sexualized behavior. So I think that there. I'm going to get the exact words wrong and help me, Harry Potter experts. You're my only hope. (laughs) So there's a moment where the woman who works at the orphanage says he went in. Tom went into the cave with those two kids and something happened in that cave. And to me, that's the that's what made me think that this is something sexualized. Right. Because I'm like, if it were just like he beat them up, she would say that someone's rabbit. He killed it. Oh, yes. And harming animals cave. is like. I think. Right? No, he hung happened? the rabbit from the rafters. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. But I think it was very ambiguous, like, what happened to the kids that he, like, takes into the cave. Right. And, like, no, you're right. Does whatever. But it also is just kind of like, I mean, Nora, I think you're right where it's very much like, I mean, there's obviously a broad range of possibilities, but I definitely feel like some kind of. Things that are adults having co- a hard time talking about is when children engage in sexual violence. Like, that is the sort of thing that adults have a really hard time speaking aloud. Sure, like, could it have been that, like, he made a magic dragon that scared them? Like, maybe. Right, but kids would, kids talk about things like that. Yeah, yeah right? for sure. That, like, that's kind of what makes, and the way, it, like, she's kind of, like, trailing off and, like, you know, it's just like something happened. And yeah, and I mean, we hit books six and seven, and J.K. Rowling is like, I want to fill these books with like vague, subtle suggestions of childhood sexual violence. Like, mm-hmm. I yeah, just I mean, I felt yeah when I was reading book six and seven, every time something like that would happen, I'm just like, oh yeah, Dumbledore's sister was attacked by Muggles, and I'm like, attacked uh, by Muggles, yeah, right, quote unquote, and it, like you know, and she just like withdraws into herself, got carried away, right? Yeah, and I'm like. That's uh, that part's really. This is happy. fucked up for a children's story, by the way. But I'm like, 
what what like what else am I supposed to think I guess as an adult no I agree and that one's even more heavy-handed than what I'm talking about right that one I think is like pretty clear when you look at that but also like I don't think it's too fucked up for a kid's book because like kids are sexually assaulted I mean, there's a way to do it, like, but, like, kids have these realities. They live them. And, like, I'm actually all for adults in an age-appropriate way, like, obviously 100% across the board, but, like, directly addressing these things. Yeah. Because – go ahead, Jesse. sorry. No, I was going to say, you're correct. And definitely, like, I'm not saying that, like, kids' books should be full of just, like, fluff and cotton candy. I guess Mm -hmm. just the way that it happens and is talked about in the book is not great for it's just like hinted at and then it's just like yeah you know like you know she dies in this mysterious way and then it's just like i mean it's again it's just like we can't trust jk rowling with like nuanced or complicated subjects yes yeah thank you and i feel like and because of that she shouldn't have put it in the book if she wasn't going to like you can't just like flesh it out wrinkle that in there yeah yeah like do one or the other right like don't dance around it if you're gonna say that a character was sexually assaulted deal with it in an age appropriate way and like allow your characters to process it right. and to talk about it. Because I think that also for survivors of childhood sexual abuse is where healing comes in is when people talk about things and they process it. Right. Yeah. So like, I think that Voldemort has really done a disservice, which like seems like the weirdest thing to say because he's like the ultimate evil wizard Nazi. Right. So like, but I think he is. And because especially, you're right, Jesse. like, the books do grapple with abuse and darker themes as they go on. And it was wholly possible to flesh this out more, but it's, like, much safer to just think that there are evil little kids who grow up to do become evil maniacal monsters, right? That's what the yeah. prosecution wants people to think about my clients, that they are monsters and they were always monsters. Right. And they deserve to die. Right. That's my work, Right. And, like, the idea that we can even say that somebody deserves to die, but also that narrative is 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 false. It's not true. And, right. like, to look at Voldemort's life and be like, he was just evil, where are, what are the places where we're missing? And the one moment that I think she kind of does it well a little bit is, like, she actually gives us, like, family history mitigation. You know, she, whoo. The Gaunts. Yeah, the Gaunts, that that Ooh. whole that whole bit where you're just like, holy shit, just so much intergenerational trauma and terribleness. Yes. And and you're just like, and you have all the like, you have this like class shit, and then you have this like wizard racism pure blood like shit, and then you have this like which honestly kind of made them come off a little bit like in a US context for for me, very white trash. You know, mm-hmm. which was also kind of like, uh, okay, I guess, you know. With those like illusions of grandeur and like being better than others. Because even though you're white trash, you're still white. Yeah. And I guess also sort of the like incest illusions is also right. what I was picking up. Right. I mean, like Merope is, has clearly been sexually assaulted by at least her brother, if not also her father. Oh, I yeah. would guess, I would posit both. Like, yeah, totally. In that household? 
Yeah. And so like one of the things that we do with mitigation histories is that, like I said before, we go back at least three generations. But sometimes when we're preparing stuff for child, what we'll also do is we'll take the entire family tree, which I've made family trees that like cover a wall, y'all, like go way, way, way back and are really complicated. Um, And we will color code different trauma factors. So like anyone in the family who had alcohol addiction, anyone in the family who had severe drug abuse, anyone in the family with suicide, anyone in the family with mental health factors, like anyone in the family with domestic violence, with um, sexual abuse. And and this is always, my client is here and is surrounded by color. Mm -hmm. And like, that's actually what she's kind of giving us. She's giving us this little glimpse into that. But yeah. then but then the problem with it is that Voldemort doesn't grow up there. Right. He grow up he grows up in this orphanage that the only snapshot of it that we get is that he's super evil and there's a nice old lady who drinks gin with Dumbledore. Right. Like but what we do see is is good I think in terms of in terms of mounting a mitigation defense for Voldemort. Like the prenatal risk factors is something we're always looking into. And so like y'all have established already on the podcast that love potion is a roofie. Right. Yeah. And I'm in full agreement on that. And so like one of the things that like I've learned throughout my work is the like real severe harm to development, emotional regulation, all kinds of stuff that alcohol, um, that fetal alcohol syndrome can cause. Right. Um, so when the, the mother drinks during pregnancy or the person who's carrying the child drinks during pregnancy. Um, and that can also some people think that that can't be transmitted through sperm, but it actually can. Um, if somebody's a severe enough binge drinker. Huh. So, yeah, the, the question of kind of like what is love potion and would it function as a controlled substance like meth or alcohol and what would be the effects on a child of, so, like, we know that, like, she's slipping Tom. Tom, father? Yes. Yeah. Tom. Thank yeah. you. So we know that she's slipping Tom love potion, like, constantly. Right. But is she also, we don't really know if she's ingesting it herself. I don't think so. Probably not. Because yeah. yeah. she already really likes him. I guess it's never really described, like, how this love potion she's using Yeah, she's making works. a stew. But I guess, <laughs> I guess we can kind of assume that she's dosing him. Like, she's dosing Tom Riddle Sr., Probably every day, very frequently, in order for him to feel like he is in love with her. Mm-hmm. Right. Totally. So, like... Or whatever effect this love potion fucking takes. Who the fuck knows? So, like, I would wonder, like, about the kind of, like, magical effects on the fetus in mm-hmm. terms of development. Um, and then also there's there's other prenatal risk factors that we've, are, we've definitely seen evidence of. Like, she's starving. She's right. literally starving. And toxic, so there's a phrase I'll use, toxic stress, which is essentially like what happens when you have extremely high cortisol levels, which, and cortisol damages neurons. Mm -hmm. And so like high cortisol levels in children who are abused, also in pregnancy, things like that can affect the literal like formation of development of all kinds of stuff. And like, I would bet also that Voldemort was born prematurely. We, we don't, there's no way to know this, but like we do see that, oh God, how do we say her name? Mariope? I think, I, I think it's 
Mm. Uh, Merope. So it's Greek. That name is one of the 12 muses. So I assume it's like Calliope, right? And it's M-E-R-O-P-E. I always thought that was Calliope. I'm pretty sure it's Calliope. No, I fully, that's me like not knowing anything about how to pronounce it. So like fully 100% on Like epitome, right? So in Greek words, if there's an E at the end, you say it like it. Oedipus. It's a Y. Epitome. Okay, so Merope? So, Merope? I, think, I think so. Okay. <laughs> Merope. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. So, okay. Merope was definitely not getting regular OBGYN checkups, y'all. Oh, no. She wasn't taking prenatal vitamins. Nope. She wasn't talking to her baby. None of this. She was starving on the streets, not using magic, terrified for her life, having been rejected by her lover who she was drugging. Um you know and and giving leaving her baby on the steps of an orphanage like that is really strong evidence of developmental dis- delays and all kinds of stuff uh i i also again want to point out the 20s which what the fuck oh. did they even do with premature babies in the 20s yeah like, they were probably like here have some cocaine right <laughs> we'll just put it in the bottle it'll, yeah it'll chill you out like, like i don't fucking know yeah no here here's some cocaine feel better I don't know. That's probably yeah. not historically accurate, but I mean laudanum, right? Didn't they give babies laudanum so yeah. rags? Here is on? here here is some laudanum for you, young <laughs> Tom. It'll be fine, baby Tom. <laughs> You'll totally grow up to be a functioning member of society. Yeah. All the laudanum we're giving you. Yeah, it's fine. It's totally fine. It's fine, fine. <sighs> cool, cool. Um, but so like, okay, so neural pathways with neural development are like a tree, right? And the most traveled branches, or like a freeway, that's also a good analogy. And the most traveled branches are the ones that grow stronger, and then things grow branches off of them. And so if like your neural pathways are positive and good, the, the things that are getting input into your little baby brain are positive and good, and you feel safe and cared for, and someone comes when you cry... The brain forms coping mechanisms, emotional regulation. And JKR kind of had the right idea when setting up Harry and Voldemort as foils because, and she said, she's gone on record in talking about this a bit. And some of this is through um, her charity Lumos, where she's, you know, through other people, but she's kind of talked a little bit about how Harry is kind of okay because he had this like key protective factor of developing his neural pathways in a home that was loving and caring. He had severe abuse later, but you cannot underestimate the amount of of good that does a child, even if it's just the first 15 months, which is what it is for Harry. Sorry, go ahead, Jesse. No, I was just gonna say, there's like literally scientific research about how much the like, yeah, like that first year or two like helps you develop shit that like lasts you your entire life. And you know? if you're a baby in a 1920s orphanage who's left lying in your own shit all the time, right? you're not developing good pathways. You're not feeling safe. You're having high cortisol levels. Like, and trauma in infants, it manifests as like all kinds of things, like sleeping difficulties, developmental disla- delays, poor weight gain, failure to thrive, irritability. And then in toddlers, it can show reckless ideation um, sorry, reckless behaviors, which can include ideation and like 
I don't know if you want to include this, but like this is a true fact about multiple of my cases that I've had my clients who through family members and others, it's been reported that they had suicidal ideation as young as like sometimes toddlers, Mm -hmm. like super young, like 10 and under or attempts, like actual suicide attempts at that young. Mm -hmm. And sleep difficulty, emotional regulation problems, developmental delays. Oh, and traumatic play. That's another huge one. And it's huge when we're talking about Voldemort, right? Because when kids hurt other little kids, my question is always, where did they learn that? Mm-hmm. Where did that little kid learn that that's how you touch somebody? Like, and so I think that like you can look, you can look at it two ways. You can see a little kid hurting another little kid real bad and say, that's an evil fucked up kid. Mm-hmm. Or you can look at that and say, where did that kid learn that? Who did that to that kid? How did that kid learn that? And like right. the responsibilities on the adult. Right. And then how do you then help that kid thrive yes. in a yes. way that is healthy? As yeah. opposed to being like, cool, you have a box full of trinkets from children that you've hurt. That's cool. Cool. All cool. right. I'm just going to like watch you from a distance. Like QNSA th- theme songs. Like that's how Dumbledore helps him, right? Dumbledore could have intervened in Voldemort's life on so many occasions. He could have redirected a lot of that had he been like, I care for you. I'm looking out for you. That's something that I want to get into is that there was that potential for sort of everything to turn around for Tom when he got to Hogwarts. Interventions. Yeah. And the importance of interventions. And the difference that they make. So like with my clients and my clients' families. So my clients' families often, I wouldn't say always, but often there's one person in the family who's like kind of okay, mm-hmm. right? And they're sometimes a sibling. They're sometimes a cousin. But like they were at ground zero, of the worst of the worst abuse. They experienced it. They saw it. They had all the same factors as my client. And like maybe all their other siblings, like half of them are dead. One of them is, you know, in prison. One of them is my client being tried with the death penalty. And um, the rest live on the street, right? Mm-hmm. And so it sort of is like this fascinating thing to me. I'm like, how do you exist? Like, how did you happen? And it's something I always ask them because I think it's important. I think a jury will want to know. And the answer over and over and over again, they always point to a person. It's always like, sure, like I grew up in this terrifying, terrifying world, but like I had a teacher or I had a series of abusive husbands, but the husband I was with for 35 years was loving and kind and didn't hit me. And like, and you know what, they're, I would, I don't want to say that like, if you survive that kind of level of like extreme trauma and extreme abuse and violence, that you're just fine, that that's possible. And you just need somebody who believes in you and everything's going to be great because they still struggle with depression and like struggle with the effects. But when I look at their lives, I'm like, you're kind of, you're kind of okay. Like you have kids that you love, that love you back and you gave them a healthy, happy home. You know, like you hold down a job that like, you know, and you do paintings on the weekend that bring you joy, like whatever it is, like 
when you're like, and when I look at the rest of your family, I'm like, these are people who again and again, it's almost like they're not present. They're so damaged that they're not able to be fully present. And, and so to me, what that tells us is, and this is backed up, like Jesse was saying earlier, by the science and the research, what that tells us is the incredible power of, of like, I'm going to be cheesy, like of love. Mm-hmm. And like, JKR is not wrong. Like love is a spell and like love is protective. And Lily's love for Harry literally with the neuroscience of it, like you can take the magic out of it even and look mm-hmm. at just the neuroscience of Harry growing up in a loving home and what that difference made in his life and the way that it wired his brain, right? Mm. And so, but that's not to say that you can't have that. You can't, and so when you look at my client's families and that that one person who's kind of okay, who's like present and there with you and and can reflect back on the trauma and has the memories, hasn't like stuffed it all down, right? They've done work. Maybe they're in therapy. And you look at them and it's like, there was a person. There was somebody who showed me that this wasn't the only way to exist. Mm -hmm. That like families didn't have to look like that. That like there's a different way to relate to other human beings. And to me, that's like really hopeful because it says it actually doesn't take a whole lot. Mm -hmm. You can like be that person to somebody else. And it makes this like huge difference. And that's to me is like the real tragedy of Voldemort's story and of my client's stories, right? Is that in my client's stories again and again, you see this like this little kid trying and reaching out. And then like there's an institutional failure. And then, you know, like they get put in juvenile hall. Then they get exposed to something else worse. It's just again and again, they fall through the cracks. Like there's nobody stepping and they don't have that person at any point. Mm-hmm. So go ahead, Lark. Sorry. So I just, I want to ask a clarifying question. Is it the case that these traumatic experiences start in infancy most of the time in the families that you're describing? Because like you've you've described Harry as growing up in a happy home a couple times, which obviously like Harry grows Not up later. Like, almost comically abused from age mm-hmm. one onward. So to me, like I'm hearing that as like it literally is like the fact that the first year of his life the he fif- was loved. fifteen months. So how does or is it the case that like kids who grow up in abusive households where the abuse doesn't start until later in childhood have significantly different outcomes? I would say so. And I would say there's other factors at play too. And let's be clear, Harry's not 100% okay. And like I said with my clients- Harry's like disingenuously okay. Yeah, like what, even like with my clients' families, right? Like they're still severely depressed, severely struggling. Like they have real, real big trauma histories. But like- you can see, I mean, even in this list of like, what are the factors in development, like um, poor weight gain. Hi, Harry Potter. Right. Right. Yeah. Like he is still very much affected by, and his development is affected by the abuse he experiences later, but you cannot underestimate the protective factors of those, of that first 15 months, right. I think is kind of what I'm saying. Like okay. that doesn't mean that the later abuse doesn't harm him. And I would have, like you guys have brought up before in the podcast, I would have liked to see more 
of Harry, like, actually being somebody who survived the horror show that he did. Right. I think we get glimpses of it with his, like, irritability. His impulsivity is, like, one of them, I would say, as a trait that, like, points to his development and, and the effects of the abuse. But, like, we don't get a whole lot. Right. And, like, and but then again, you could counter that with, like, he actually gets some really good positive chosen family. And adults who love him unconditionally. Right. So it makes me really sad for Voldemort when I think about what a difference it could have made had Dumbledore loved him. Yep. Or if they just like had a school counselor. Honestly, sure. it didn't have to be Dumbledore. It could have yeah, been literally the anyone. <laughs> yeah. Which, you know, actually now that I'm... Now that we're talking about this, it's actually been making me think a little bit about Slytherin House as we see it in the books. Mm. And You mean baby Nazis? Yes. <laughs> and this is, of course, no shade to IRL Slytherins, like, you yes. know, of which there are many. But, I mean, so, you know, what, what we get in the books of Tom at Hogwarts is that he was super charming, he was super smart, but he is clearly very clearly masking all of his feelings and turmoil and all of this trauma that he has dealt with for the first 11 years of his life. Mm-hmm. Can, I mean, you know, we... Horror show 1920s orphanage. Yeah. Yeah, right. And, like, everyone just, like, he's totally fine. And it's, like... And then, you know, we get that scene with, like, Slughorn and talking about the horror cruxes, which is, like, dude, number one, no. D- like, what? But also... Mm-hmm. You kind of get the sense where Slughorn is supportive as far as it serves his own agenda. Mm-hmm. And so... He's not going to scratch the surface at all. No. And I mean, honestly, we could kind of arguably say the same thing about Gryffindor and the way that like both Harry and Neville are treated in the house. It's like there could be a lot more nurturing of the children that are in the house. It's like... What's the fuck's the point of the houses if you're not going to fucking help these kids? Uh, which I, British boarding schools apparently are terrible, whatever. But I guess I'm just wondering, like, I don't know. If Tom Verla had been sorted into Hufflepuff or something, like, oh, would there, could, Tom. There, could there have been someone who was like, you know what, Tom, you are really good at charms or transfiguration. We're going to, like, we're going to hang out. We're going to find you a place to live that's not the orphanage in the summertime. We're going to, like, you know, help channel your curiosity and interest into pursuits that don't involve murdering people and trying to avoid death. Or, or like, we're going to give you some actual, like, real therapeutic tools, like intensive EMDR, mm-hmm. like, to deal with the shit that was put on you, like, you know? You're yeah. fucking witches, like... Can we just have an EMDR spell? Like yes. a <gasps> right. neural pathway rewiring oh spell without right. all it's the like, crying and snot? It's like you can regrow <laughs> some bones and then overnight you can rewire some pathways in my brain. It's just a piece of muscle. Like just. Totally. What are they even doing? Well, and also like we get all these rumors about like Tom bullying and like having bullying behaviors and stuff. And like that, that there were these red flags. It's not like he was just this, like, super actor perfect kid 
who was right. like, you know, like there were red flags that adults should have picked up on and intervened and been like, right. what's really going on, Tom? Like, are you okay? Okay, you're not okay. Right. And it seems like unbelievably that no one knew that Tom Riddle was the one who opened the Chamber of Secrets. It's like no one knew that he was a parcel tongue and was like controlling this giant murder snake. Like, really? Dumbledore knew. Really? You guys are just going to let poor Hager take the fall for this shit? Oh, it's because you're bigoted against people who are half giants? Oh, curious how that works. So... I'm sorry, that's just reminding me. What was the name of the spider that you guys decided she named her spider in the Speckles. earlier? Speckles. Speckles. <laughs> Yeah, poor Hagrid with speckles took the fall. It's true. Over some bullshit with like fucking zero evidence. Yeah, well, and what we see in that memory that Harry sees is that Dumbledore knew. And I think in the book it says something like Dumbledore gave Tom one of those searching looks or whatever. Yeah, he fucking knew. He fucking knew. And he was just like, I'm going to keep an eye on you, like, traumatized child. Not do anything. But then, why does Dumbledore do that? Dumbledore grew up thinking secrets are the only way. Don't intervene. Don't tell anyone. That is true. It's just, like, also portrayed. It's like she writes it so that we're supposed to come away with this message of, like, that's bad and not the way to do it but something that i realized when i first read the percy jackson series is that everything about the harry potter series trained me to believe that keeping secrets and like not telling people your plans was the only way to do things because everyone just tells everyone the plan all the time in percy jackson it's like oh i like had this prophetic dream and i'm gonna come to the campfire tonight and tell the whole camp what the prophetic dream was and we're all going to decide together and like do a thing. And every time it happened in the books, (laughs) I got this like terror feeling for them in my stomach where I was like, you can't tell everyone someone there is going to betray you. And like, at some point I was like, Harry Potter taught me this. Mm -hmm. Harry Potter taught you don't go get an adult. Right. Don't, don't tell the adults and definitely don't just like tell people willy nilly. Like you had this, you, you tell Annabeth, that's it. You can't tell anyone else. It's too dangerous. Bottle that shit up. Bottle it up. That's what Dumbledore teaches Harry over and over. Bottle your shit up, push it down. And it's weird that we're supposed to like hit the, the scene where, you know, dead Dumbledore is talking to Harry and sort of unlearn all of that. But you've spent seven books showing us that this is how you win the war like you can't just undo it in like yeah. one sentence where Dumbledore's like no that was bad of me yeah. yeah yeah well but it's also is it really Dumbledore or is it what Harry wishes Dumbledore would have told him right because it's in mm. Harry's head which so is can we even philosophy if we for later sure yeah 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 <laughs> but like we can't even give him credit for that because I I actually think it's more interesting the idea that Dumbledore is never redeemed Sometimes with lots of hard ass work and lots of community care, people overcome extremely traumatic, terrible circumstances. But sometimes people are hurt and they continue to enact hurt and they don't unlearn that. And it's sad and it's tragic, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and it's, and it breaks your heart open. This is why I love each and every one of my clients. My clients have done terrible, terrible things. But like, I've sat in the living rooms of just, it's dark. Let's just leave it at that. It's dark. 
and and I really felt for there were they were little babies once. You know, I sit down with their mom and go through the photo album and see this little baby with their favorite puppy. Voldemort had a favorite pet. What happened to Voldemort's pet? Right? I mean, he does have Nagini, which he does still, if anything, probably the only thing he has maybe, like, we see showing, like, care and affection to. Yeah. Well, yeah, and, like, difficulty with emotional connection with other people, like, difficulty with accepting and giving love. I mean, we do not see him do that ever as an adult. No. He's a profoundly oh broken person. What if the Basilica was his only friend at school? I mean, like, he had, like... He had, like, friends, but it was clearly, like, these are people that, like, are powerful that I can just, like, manipulate around me. Yeah, and he didn't let anybody in. Nobody knew about his parentage, his history, where he came from, all of that shit. Like, no, it's walls. It's defensive walls to, like, help, which is, like, that's how his neural pathways worked, right? This is how I survive and get out of the orphanage is by being a smart kid who, like, doesn't cause trouble, like, who doesn't get into trouble, right? Right. And like, yeah. and that's the thing you see too with that, oh, the lady at the orphanage, she kind of says like things, like he never gets caught. Right. She kind of says that. And I'm like, yeah, cause he learned what happened to him those first couple times he got caught, something bad. So he learned you keep it all inside. You don't get caught and you make adult, you say, yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. To all the adults in your life. Right. Mm-hmm. And you go to Slughorn and you're charming. You know, like, you, and he learned yeah. how to do that probably at a super young age. He learned, like, super hyper-emotional intelligence and the ability to manipulate. Um, and I don't mean to say that emotional intelligence is a bad thing, but, like, if you're a little kid and you're, like, on tenterhooks about the emotions of the adults around you, that's usually because, like, you had to be, you know? Which is different, I think, from having emotional intelligence about your own feelings. Yes. Yeah. Yes. They're different yeah. things. Like I'm talking about like kind of uh, hypervigilance more. Yeah. Yeah. Emotional hypervigilance, I guess, is the better way to put it. Baby Tom. <laughs> little, little, little baby Tom. Little young person Tom. Um, I also feel like I would be remiss without kind of bringing this up, which is we're given sort of a half-assed, like reason about like why Voldemort wants to kill muggles that Mm -hmm. I actually don't totally believe. Like I do believe that Tom decided that he want that he enjoys murdering people and causing harm and stuff. What I think is actually more realistic is that Tom got into Slytherin, realized that like most of purebred culture, like white supremacy is based on hating muggles and like Mm -hmm. being, having a binary of like, well, I'm superior and y'all are trash and he just sort of manipulated that and went into that in order to, like, suck other purebreds into his plan. Because mm-hmm. his, like, whatever trying to master death thing that he was trying to do seems much different than, like, murdering a bunch of muggles. But it, it kind of almost feels like he's just, like, along for the ride of whatever purebred bullshit, you know, happens in Slytherin. And, like, doesn't care as much about that, potentially. I think that... Yes and no. I think that there's also some self-hate there. And and underneath that, there's fear, right? Think about like, I mean, I don't know if this is a good analogy, but like think about like uh, the, the kind of like gay panic defense, even right. though it's not a reasonable legal defense, it's BS, but like that what drives gay bashings, 
which is underneath it is a deep self-hate and a fear of being discovered, you know, and, and Voldemort has a secret. He's not a pureblood. Right. Yeah. And he finds this out about himself because he's a smart ass kid. So, you know, I wonder if, yes, he's going, I think, yes, Jesse, I agree that he's like kind of going along with like, this is how you survive in this white supremacist slash muggle supremacist world. But like, also, if it's true of him that Hogwarts was the first place he felt like was home, then, and also think back to like, what was his experiences in the muggle world before that? Like, why wouldn't he want to reject that part of himself? I think there probably also is, like, you know, the way that traumatized folks in various ways grasp at things that make us feel like we have power over situations. And so if his first murder was just, like, I want to make a horcrux, I never want to die, but doing the murder made him feel like he had a sense of control and was like, I'm in charge of a thing. I think it's totally possible that that was part of the draw for him too, was like, mm. this makes me feel powerful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What's his first murder? Is it his brother? It's it's the, is it all the riddles? Right, I, I actually don't remember. three of the riddles. It's his family. Yeah. What more is an indication of like intergenerational family trauma? Yeah. It's right there. So she gives us that. But then she's like, okay, yeah, yeah, he does that. But then, like, look at this little evil demon child. Look at this right. evil. And then she doesn't give us anything else in seven fucking books of, of arguably one of the largest and most important characters. He's right. the villain. Like, yeah. and these books are fucking long. And I'm sorry, but JKR, they were not limiting you on page numbers. The, lo- the further you got into it, they were like, go, do whatever you want. So there was plenty <laughs> <Yeah>. of room. <laughs> I, I have very strong feelings about this. <laughs> yes. There was plenty of room for her to give us more and to flesh him out. And it's like, it's almost like you don't really think about it when you're reading it. How much is missing of his story? And it's meant to be kind, I guess it's like meant to be kind of like adds to the mystery and the creepiness, but I'm like, but you know what? Then it's harder to hate him. It's harder to hate him when you start to understand him. You don't want to kill him as much, which is like my literal job. Yeah. I also, um, let me see. I think it's important that we... Like, most people, right, who grow up in situations like Voldemort don't become Voldemort. Like, that is important to note, right? Mm -hmm. And, like, Sirius and Regulus grew up in a terrible, cold, abusive house and, like, both ended up being heroes, right? Mm -hmm. Ended up being, I mean, Sirius much earlier than Regulus, Mm -hmm. right? Regulus was, like, trying to please his parents for much longer, but, like, he had a conscience, and, like, Mm -hmm. we're not supposed to believe that Voldemort has a conscience. Most, I would say that, I would add to that, and I would say, yes, absolutely, but also, most people, so many of us suffer abuse, right? Right. So many of us suffer sexual violence, like, and as queers and queer folk 
and trans folk like we're way overrepresented in that statistic right. but like yep. um and you add in folks of color all of that but i would say that yes and the level of of horror that my clients live through is actually not most people right right like it's actually really the worst of the worst it is where all of the failures and all of the factors and it's where there's meth abuse sexual violence physical violence poverty racism all of it combines together right and Mm -hmm. so i think it is actually rare that people come out of that present and whole and okay but i also really appreciate lark your point because no this is not destiny and that's what like the science behind neuroplasticity shows us right is that it is actually not that hard to re like do your pathways right what is it it takes like 30 days to relearn a new habit you know like it and and like we talked about before the power of resilience and the power of community care and love and and the ways that those factors help somebody overcome those like horrific existences but mm-hmm. i would say i would say that like Yes, lots of us experience abuse. And absolutely do I not want to say that, like, just because you've experienced sexual violence means you're going to be a murdering wizard Nazi. Like, that's not the correlation. But, like, the reality is, is that most people don't experience the extremity of what my clients live through. And Mm -hmm. I'd argue what we see that Voldemort lives through. Shit. The intergenerational family tree that he's got combined with the horror show of a 1920s orphanage? That's pretty damn extreme. It's not quite the same as what the abuse that Sirius and Regulus experience. Right, right, and right. I, d- what I don't want to put a hierarchy. Kids that that grew up in the orphanage from infancy. I I think that you can say when we're looking at like a larger institution, like like look like let's take something modern, right? Like juvenile detention, right? Okay, because mm-hmm. we have less orphanages in the U.S., right? Sure. I mean, we have a horrifying foster system instead sure right yep and are there people who survive a horrifying foster care system and come out okay and fine tiffany haddish right badass but are there a lot of people who have lingering pain and suffering as a result of it yeah do all of those people turn around and hurt other people no absolutely not and there also are like you know are you the kind of person who hurts yourself do you turn that pain and suffering inward or you do do you turn it outward and at the risk of god please do not think that i'm making a, a argument for bio gendered essentialism like absolutely no gendered essentialism here but in terms of statistically there are more trends and this i think has to do with the ways that men and women are socialized totally men tend to go outward and women tend to harm inward Right. right. Well, because boys are given permission to, mm-hmm. like, tacitly given permission to act. Well, yeah. yeah, and they can't internalize. They're not given the tools in the same right. way. And and the self-hate internally harming stuff that goes on, right? Um, so, like, no. Do I think that all the kids who lived in that orphanage, like, became murder Nazis? Probably not. 
But like, do I think that a high percentage of them struggled with alcoholism or some kind of addiction or got into abusive relationships or like had depression or had like really extreme anxiety? Yeah. But like, it's so, it's the perfect storm stuff, right? It's not just you live in an orphanage, you become a Nazi. Right. It's not just you like have an alcoholic parent, you become an evil person. Well, you don't become an evil person, right? right. But There's like, no such thing as an evil person. Evil person, that's what I'm trying to deconstruct. But like, right, it's not just the one factor. It's what I was talking about before with those charts. Right. It's you are surrounded by it. It is a perfect storm. And every time there's a chance for an institution or a teacher or a foster parent or somebody to step in and take care of you, they harm you. Right. And so that's what I would posit are the stories we're missing. We just don't get them for Voldemort. So potentially Hogwarts was like almost a worst case scenario for him in terms of an intervention taking place because they do take such a completely hands-off approach Mm -hmm. to raising the children that are in their care and sort of assume that they'll get all the parenting they need in the summers. Yeah, they'll be fine. not getting any of... Yeah, what does he do in the summers? Does he stay at the school? I can't remember. He goes back to the orphanage. Oh, yeah, he fuck. wants to. He wants to stay at the school, and they won't That's let right. him. That's right. For oh. whatever reason, that That's doesn't make any sense to me. Hagrid. Oh, 10 million crying emojis. Yeah. Yeah. Was and like, was there no like? I don't know way to have him be like a groundskeeper apprentice. Was there no like creative? Like, people within institutions can get creative with this shit all the time. Like, nobody could have done that. Or, hi, wizarding world, here's a kid who needs a safe home to go home to in the summer. Can you watch a kid for a summer? Right. Yeah. And I I also kind of want to bring up, with, with Tom and also IRL, the fact that, you know, Tom doesn't have a biological family as a young person. He doesn't have any money. He doesn't have a support system. No. And as we can tell, there is no support system in the witching world once you're outside of Hogwarts. So like what do homeless kids do at Hogwarts? What an excellent question. Everyone knows that kids born into the witching world are, have healthy and well-adjusted home lives. <laughs> unless unless they're Slytherins. <laughs> Like, is it just like, okay, kid, go back to the street? I mean, honestly, if there was like a muggle-born kid, they'd probably be like, all right, see ya. Have fun. Unless like someone, unless they like went home with someone for the summertime. Like, you know, we see Yeah, I mean, because they, they can make their own choices about things like that, right? Like Sirius started only going home with James for the summer. So maybe they just assume that they'll find their chosen family among their peers and hope that they can go home with them. And yeah. the school just doesn't do any any checking about anything like that you have a big ass castle it's like you can't have a couple of kids there it's like all right honestly the kids could just stay at hogwarts for the summer and no one would know it would be the same amount of supervision hide in the dungeon (laughs) no one like it's like that one book where the kids go hide in the museum they could just like avoid filch and the teachers like it could probably happen like room of requirement right yeah and the house elves wouldn't tell they'd just be like yeah sure you need you need food whatever yeah, because yeah. of the magical law, you can't make food in the room of requirement. Cool, I mean, we got some. I think the I think the elves would be fine to be like bring right. you some food. They wouldn't totally. They yeah. wouldn't snitch. I don't think they any wouldn't of the elves... even like think twice. They, they don't snitch like, on Fred and George, who are yeah. always getting food from them. 
Yeah. But so what you said about Sirius makes me think back. That's his people. Remember I was talking about like with my clients and their families and there's usually like that one person or like those those really like core people that they point to. James and James's parents. Right. That's who did it for him. It was his friends, his peers, but he also had loving adults who were like this is not the only way to family. Right. Yeah. There are other ways to family. That yeah. gave him a different reality, which is part of why he's an okay human. Yeah, I f- yeah, I, I I guess I was just kind of thinking about, so at my job we have like a youth department when we were in like a youth center. And the youth department at my job has been that intervening factor for like a lot of kids. Mm-hmm. I've only worked there for a couple of years and it's just like kids who are just like every adult in their life has failed them. The system mm-hmm. has failed them. The institution of our society have failed them. But it's like people at my, like the person who runs our, youth program is like no we're gonna make sure at least you're eating at least a few times a week when you're here we're gonna help you get into college we're gonna like if you need a place to stay because your guardian has kicked you out you're gonna stay with me and it's like that is the kind of intervention that's like changes people's lives yes and as someone who also has childhood trauma i can there's I, there's definitely people like when like you know when i was you know like in high school that like filled that role for me where it's like I'm like, if that hadn't happened, what would have become of me? And it's like, mm-hmm. nothing, nothing good. <laughs> yeah. Sure. And it's just like, and I feel like even just like, you know, for those who are just like, I, and I feel like I know a lot of people who can like pinpoint folks like that in their lives where it's like, you know, these people, my trusted family is important to me because they have helped me survive as a person. Cause I, and honestly, this comes down to survival. Like it comes down to being mm-hmm. like, well, I didn't like self-medicate myself into death, you know, because I there was other things for me to. There was another person who cared. Yeah. That I was still here. Yeah. And like taught me that my life has value and that like I have an inherent value. And I yeah. fully believe that all human beings have inherent value. This is mm-hmm. true. Like no matter how damaged you have value. Yeah. And like the kind of the worst thing is, is that it's, it sort of comes down to luck on in a lot of times. Like the one person who like, you know, gets out of a, you know, tr- this like terrible and you know, trauma situation. It's like, right. One person is like, I see something in you. I want to like nurture that. And it's just like, but because like our education system and our like social, social safety net systems all fucking suck. It's like, it, do- it isn't, that isn't available to everyone. It's just like, it's dumb luck in a lot of times. And that's why it is so remarkable when it does happen in my clients' families in particular, right? Because I'm kind of, that's why I'm always left like, how? How are you, you? Like, and, and you know what? Because, like, and, and Jesse, like you were saying, like, were you unaffected by your childhood trauma? No, of course not, right? None of like, we're all affected. We all carry the trauma that we experience with us. Yeah. But, like, the fact that you had people who helped protect you. And like one of the key things in childhood development and like trauma is like these three questions. Am I safe? Who keeps me safe? And are they safe? And like, if kids know how to answer those three questions and I don't mean that they can actually verbalize it, but like they're kind of, they're going to be okay. But if like, those are not like, okay, You know, like there's lots of, there's a lot of room for harm that can happen if like, even if a kid is safe, a kid can still get harmed, right? 
Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not trying to say that, like, that's the only requirement for, like, good parenting. Yeah. Like, yes, your kid might be physical, physically safe, but are they emotionally safe? Mm-hmm. But, like, and also, like, too, like, is the person caring for me safe? Because, frankly, like, sometimes physical abuse enacted on children, sometimes what can have worse effects can be children witnessing the abuse of their caregiver, mm-hmm. right? Because that's about their inherent safety, right. too. Um, that makes all three of those, who keeps me safe? I don't know. Am I safe? I don't think so. And who, and is the person who keeps me safe, safe? Nope. You know? And so it's, but it, it's, it is, it feels so simple, right? Like the answer is like, make sure kids are okay. How do we stop murder? Make sure kids are okay. Or make sure their families are stable enough to weather things like unemployment or make make there not be environmental yes. racism. Poverty. Like, let yeah. there not be lead in their water. It's like... Require cis men to go to therapy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 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 Yeah. Uh, maybe, 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 I don't know, maybe a universal maybe basic yeah. income. Maybe we could just uh, make sure everyone has housing and like food and water that's clean to drink. Yes. Yeah. And mental health care as a right. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. not just as, like, a only for the privileged among us. Yeah. Can we talk about agency? Mm. Yes. So, because I think a lot of us, like, in our peer group is not the word that I mean, but, you know, subset of society. There's a, a larger conversation going on as we talk about wider recognition of mental illness and trauma and the ways that those things play out. And what that means for, like, friendships and relationships and, like, how much room does that afford me in terms of, like, treating someone else poorly because I Mm. am dealing with my stuff? And the answer is, like, not a lot, right? Like, you still have to have agency. You still have to – you have to make choices about how you play those things out in your relationships with other people, right? You can have a reaction, you can have an issue, and you are responsible for talking that through with your friends and your loved ones in terms of like, here's what I need when I'm going through this thing. And like, what are your boundaries with this? And how do Mm -hmm. I respect those? And what can we do? Right. But we have to accept agency over that, regardless of what we're dealing with. Right. Um, at least if we want to have relationships with mm-hmm. other people, because that's just how society works. So where does agency come into a conversation like this in terms of like, you know, Voldemort's going to be super fucked up no matter what, given how he grew up. But like, where do we draw the line between you were set up for this to become your life and you could have done like lived out your fucked up in this in a way that didn't involve murdering people and being a Nazi. I think that my answer to that would be that's where the difference between things like transformative justice and punitive justice becomes mm-hmm. so clear, right? Like when we use a transformative justice model, people are all held accountable, but like you're also really getting down to the root at causes of things. Mm-hmm. And it's also like, just transformative justice models are so incredible and like yes jesse 
bring down, take apart the prisons and like build libraries and mental health centers and have people trained in transformative justice who can facilitate and mediate conflict and, and issues because yeah, sure. People are going to be mean to each other. People are going to hurt each other. Like the, the, the question is, what do you do with people who've hurt people? And if your answer is hurt them more, you're not going to have a good ending. Right. Like, so like, yes, do people need to be held accountable for the harm that they do, especially in communities? Absolutely. But is like just picking them up and moving them away and like, and hurting them more going to answer that for us? No. No. But like, yeah, people have agency. Like, yeah, you get to say no to somebody harming you. Like, we get to have boundaries around that stuff. Like, and we should, and, and our world is not going to be made better if we don't you have to hold people accountable to the harm that they enact on others. Like that's crucial. But that's, I think that if you do it from a transformative justice model, you're, you're approaching it in a much more holistic way. You are looking at solutions. You're looking at resolution. You're looking at the root of the conflict. You're looking at like, what is the harm that was done mm -hmm. and you're healing. Right. And I think that's the problem, right? Is that the answer is send them to torture prison, which let's be real is all prisons. Right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah, right? Like, all prisons are Azkaban, hashtag. And, I mean, that's... I mean, death row literally is solitary confinement. And if you're waiting on a death penalty case or a death penalty trial, like, you don't touch other people. You're not around other human beings. And you might not technically be put in solitary confinement, but that's the way that death row functions, right? right? You're not in general population. So, yeah, that's torture. Mm -hmm. like like so yeah if, if the answer is i think your question is like so crucial but it's like do we oh well then do we just let people run around murdering being like terrible wizard nazis no absolutely not but like do we then go like cool i'm gonna hurt you worse i'm gonna send you to dementors and like literal torture prison no we can't do that right i'm like we can't undo abuse if we don't work with abusers right true we can't fix that problem mm -hmm. if we just cover our ears you know yep but it just yeah it goes back to like maybe makes me think about little baby tom i'd forgotten that he goes home to the orphanage every goddamn summer yeah he needed a basket of kittens too okay tom riddle needed a basket of kittens he really did i mean <laughs> but would he have hugged those kittens or would he have harmed those kittens <laughs> he needed a basket of kittens at like age two yeah and like an adult to like direct his play yeah, yeah. like an adult who cared about him yeah because like kids pull animal hurt animals all the time right like when they're not taught and when they're really really little kids right like that's a way kids interact with animals but when there's adults who care about you to step in and be like hey that hurts that animal Right. Like, don't do that. Maybe he needs a basket of, like, baby snakes he can, like, talk to. Oh. And I mean, you don't really cuddle snakes, but, like, you can, like, pet them. You and can, they can cuddle like, snakes. They like being warm. That's true. Yeah. Snakes will totally, like, take a nap with you. What he really needs is an adult who cares about him. He really yeah. needs yeah. somebody to be like, you're not going home to that horror show orphanage every summer. Right. So then it's like whatever safety he felt at Hogwarts is just completely undermined. Right. Like over and over and over again. 
which is almost even more tragic than not having that like vague safety at all because it taught him that that's ephemeral and it's not going to last. Right. Yeah. Poor baby Tom. All right. This is so many sad feelings. I also love that. Like, I think it's really funny that you guys are using this as a pride episode. (laughs) (laughs) We just use pride month as an excuse to do off topic conversations. We talked about child abuse last year. Cool. Tight. And what else? Oh, we're, we're, we're going to be also talking about if this, I don't know when this is going to air, but about HIV as a terrible metaphor for werewolfism. Oh, yeah. How fucked up that is. Oh, yep. do a better job with your metaphors, JKR. That's the moral of pride, I think, actually, every year is just you did a bad job writing books. <laughs> <laughs> we don't approve of But your... we love them. But no, you did a bad job. Yeah. I mean, listen, we always have other queer people to talk about it. So it's like getting queers together to talk about how fucked up JKR's writing is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that the conversation about agency and transformative justice, and I think we should talk about the ways that those things link into like neuroplasticity yeah. and end on like and so what can we do to mm-hmm. prevent Voldemort's or to heal the a, world in an ideal world like what what do we do with Voldemort's that is not Azkaban right whether fictional or IRL Azkaban mm-hmm. does that make sense as yeah a very no totally question. and we've like jumped, touched on that but I think it's a really good note to end on I mean, right, you brought up neuroplasticity and that's what neuroplasticity shows us is that is that our brains can change, right? We can relearn habits. We can relearn. We can chart new paths, right? And that's possible. And the way that we do that is with consistency and safety and care and consistently showing up. And that means good mental health care, right? Like that means not torture prison (laughs) that means what is the opposite basically the answer i think is what is the opposite of torture prison like like helping people feel safe helping people feel autonomous like creating resilience creating connection um and working working on healing and and on undoing trauma through real therapies that work like magical emdr that's what we do with voldemort Mm -hmm. we give him a basket of snakes we give him magical EMDR and we find like, like what if there was a squib who was like really sad and lonely and was like a little old lady and like who like needed someone to clean out her gutters and like, oh my you know, like and, and would love to have a little kid around every summer and they went on adventures and like held hands. Like, can someone write that fan fiction for us of like Voldemort not going to the horror or- orphanage and like he finds somebody like that's i'm like really do. into this actually yeah, i'm like yeah. oh. <laughs> like what what is her name that harry goes to her mrs. house fig. mrs fig yeah like what if there was a mrs fig who like could have become voldemort's caretaker and then maybe eventually adopted him formally oh like the weird was the weird lizard lady version of mrs fig lizard lady who just has like a bunch of like snakes and lizards oh and yes oh, instead of cats, of cats. yeah, yeah. Yeah, maybe there's a lady who loves, like, reptiles and is, like, super into it and is like, oh, my God, this kid can talk to my snakes. 
Yeah. <laughs> Imagine being like, hey, you're super lonely. You're an adult. You oh, exist Voldemort in- grows up to be a magical herpetologist. <gasps> oh, my God. <laughs> yes. Oh, oh my God. God. That's and lovely. there just wasn't a, there wasn't a there wasn't a war because Voldemort just decided to go into. Yeah. Herpetology. Imagine like you were just like super lonely and someone was like, hey, you really are obsessed with reptiles. Like, here's a little kid who needs a home who can literally talk to them for you. It's like really like a match made in heaven. Yeah. That's what I want for him. I don't know. I don't know why like somehow like tender lizard nerd Voldemort is very endearing to me, but like it really is. Yeah. It didn't have to be this way. Like a lot of things failed Tom Riddle. You know? Yeah. That's, that's oh my god y'all that's my job that's my whole job like it didn't have to be this way things failed but yeah. like what is the message going forward for the future it's like let's make sure we don't make those same mistakes mm-hmm. yeah. let's make sure we look out for like little kids and make sure that all people feel safe and loved and cared for um i mean same with animals right like it is it doesn't take a lot yeah it doesn't take a lot to rehabilitate an animal who's been really hurt yeah Mm -hmm. like this is my my trauma baby yeah i have a trauma baby too she had like burns all over her nose when she showed up at the shelter and she's like looks like a different dog look at that trauma baby look at that sweet boy he's so squishy look at that squishy boy yeah and i think actually you know, I was thinking about that when we were talking about neuroplasticity, probably because Rufio just came and got in my lap. But like, there's a lot in that that we can learn from like animal behavior mm-hmm. experts, right? Because, you know, it's a little easier with them. It's not as simple for us as being like, do the scary thing while eating a cookie. But like, <laughs> that is Sometimes sort of I mean, would that work though? Honestly, could I like... Work in my mental health by like having to, Nicole just give me snacks whenever I do the thing correctly. Kind of. I mean, because there is a lot of crossover. And like, that's how you help dogs through trauma is like, oh, the scary thing's happening. Have some cheese whiz. Yep. And like, then they're like, oh, bath time isn't scary. Bath time is cheese whiz time. Bath time's peanut butter party. Yeah. And so, I don't know. Like, I think, I think there's something really hopeful in that because like, we, are we do see that there actually is like a lot of crossover in that and we can see that in like our dogs and cats and whatever as a sort of like baseline for you know you can have a dog that's totally feral and was like abused and Mm -hmm. horrifically treated and have that dog end up being the sweetest cuddliest safest most wonderful creature and you do that by just like giving them positive experience and consistency and safety that's that's how you do that well and it and i think that sometimes i get overwhelmed i mean i get overwhelmed with my work a lot it's super heavy but like if you look at it as like okay the only way to solve this is to solve racism and sexism and poverty and homophobia we got to fix all that before no the way to look at it as is like one person at a time, mm-hmm. right? And like, who are the people in your life who you can positively affect? Who are the people in your life who you can be kind to? Like, and and also, is that person yourself? 
And like, how can you be kind to yourself and work on yourself? Because you know what? If you heal your own trauma, you are much less likely to enact it and project it onto the people around you who love you. Right. So like the revolution starts at home, (laughs) y'all. The revolution starts at home. So, you know, with our fur babies and ourselves and our community. And then we get Voldemort having a little old lady who loves reptiles and being best friends rather than a literal wizard Nazi. Mm-hmm. Um, which is really hopeful. It is hopeful. You're, you're right, Lark. Cool. Yay. All right. Um, is there anything else that you want to say before we wrap up? Just that I'm so pleased and happy to do this. And like you guys have been in my ears for so many hours. <laughs> so like it's super weird to be talking to you IRL because <laughs> I'm like so used to like just talking back and you don't answer me. Because <laughs> I do talk back to the podcast when oh, I listen yeah, to course. all the time. Yeah. I did Marcy's that to Witch, to please, do. like all the way through with Hannah and, and Marcel. I was like, no, no, no. But yes, yes, I agree. Like always. <laughs> And yeah. I'm living alone right now, so I'm in quarantine, living alone. So it's like even more magnified <laughs> that like Nora's talking to herself. Um, <laughs> so it's so lovely to see both of your faces, and I this is like a dream come true. It's magical. Thank you so much for reaching out. It was very awesome to have you here for this conversation. This was great. Yay! Yeah, I mean, abolish prisons, everyone. So. Yeah. <laughs> and the death how... penalty. And a death penalty. Yeah. Tell us about where to find you and your art to find my art you can find my art at www.norarachelart.com and that's nora with no h because a silent h is nonsense sorry nora's with h's like this is like (laughs) controversial opinion but like nora jones Jones. (laughs) yeah you're wrong you're doing it wrong you're doing your name wrong nora jones um so n-o-r-a-r-a-c-h-e-l art art.com and the same handle is for my instagram same for my email norarachelart at gmail.com um and like i love talking about this stuff but i try to keep my art stuff separate from my work stuff so if you want to talk to me more about death penalty work or like i don't know maybe you work in the field and want to find out more about the work that I do and where I'm based and all of that, you can send me an email um, and we can go from there. But I I do try to keep things compartmentalized and separate because I go into courtrooms and prisons and stuff. So I need to keep that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Um, You can also find Nora's art in our pride packet. Pride. What am I calling it? Pride zine? Are we not calling it a zine? It's it's not a zine. It's a activity book. That's what activity it is. book. Our bride activity book. There's uh they contributed some coloring book pages that are really beautiful. So if you haven't checked that out yet, please make sure that you do. Is it like the Gaily Prophets version of like highlights? Yeah. Cool. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's highlights. gonna have mad libs and a word search and paper dolls and coloring book stuff and I'm still talking to some other artists about other things Yay. that folks might do. So yeah, I made a uh, slash pairings word search yesterday. Nice. So cute. Yeah. This is the hardest word search ever because none of the things in it are real words. Oh, are they all magical words? No, they're all the like like dreary and pansmyan. <laughs> like, oh, you went with all the ship names. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Oh 
My God, I can't wait. Yeah, it's. Great. I haven't anyway. seen any of this stuff yet, by the way. So, like, <laughs> at the time of this recording, so. Oh my God, amazing! All right, I'm gonna click stop recording. Okay. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Gaily Prophet. I'm alone here in the outro because Jesse and I forgot to record it. So, reminders about our Pride Month stuff that we've got going on. Our Queer Harry Potter activity book is available until the end of the month, so grab that. It's free if you uh, if you want it. That's on our website, which is thegailyprofit.com. We are having a sale on all of our merch for Pride Month, and we are donating the proceeds from all of our merch sales and our Patreon this month to the LGBTQ Freedom Fund, which is a bail fund for queer and trans folks, which is really necessary right now. Don't forget about our movie watch on June 26th and make sure that you're following us on social media for more information about all of this and also about how much we hate JK Rowling, etc. Uh, we're on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at The Gaily Prophet and on Tumblr at The Gaily Prophet Pod. And you can support us on Patreon if you want to at patreon.com slash the gaily prophet the music in our theme song is by kevin mcleod our show art is by theo julian forrester and until next time abolish police and turfs